The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, it's been 100 years since the publication of what is widely considered the preeminent novel of the 20th century. 1922, a momentous year which also saw the publication of T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland, which many consider the hallmark of modernist poetry. Years before 1922, an Irish schoolboy wrote an essay called My Favorite Hero. He chose Ulysses, the Latin name for Odysseus, the main character of the Odyssey. He's an all-rounder, said the Irish schoolboy later, the best all-rounder in literature. That Irish schoolboy is known to us as James Joyce, of course, and his novel bears the name of that favorite hero of his. What did he mean by an all-rounder? I think he meant that Odysseus is known not just for his brawn, but his brains, his guile, his wits, his savvy. The Iliad is the story of a great warrior, Achilles, during the Trojan War. Odysseus, or Ulysses, spends the Odyssey trying to get home from that war. It takes him ten years. Joyce's Ulysses, a man named Bloom, spends a day in Dublin, but his journey is in some sense inward. As Joyce's stream-of-consciousness style pastiched together with all kinds of other rhetorical and linguistic shifts, takes us moment by moment through the perceiving mind of Bloom and others. It's not a decade of journeying through monsters and myths, but a day in Dublin with the monsters and myths converted to modernity. Mike Palindrome is here today. He's been reading Ulysses with his Twitterverse community of readers, and he's bringing us the news of what it's like to read Ulysses with a hundred friends a hundred years later. That's coming up today on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson, hosting my head off, so to speak. Well, that's my job, ain't it? Oh, things are good here in August, as in August, as August gives way to September. If by good you mean sweltering but surviving, I hope you're surviving too. Hey, let me say right up front what this episode is not. It's not an hour of solid description of Ulysses. It's not going to walk through the book Chapter by chapter, it's not a field guide or a reading companion or even a history of the book's origins. None of that. We'll do that another time. Ulysses is a universe. We could spend a lot of time on it. I spent three episodes on the dead, just that story alone. I could do a hundred episodes on Ulysses. You could do a whole podcast on it. I'm sure somebody is doing it, probably more than one person. This is going to be lighter than that. This is two old friends giving their top 10 things about Ulysses. That's what we intended to do. I can't remember if we actually did 10. We recorded this one a while ago. I think we tried to do 10 as we usually do in our drafts, but for some reason I think we had to abandon this, the counting scheme because there was too much overlap. Anyway, we had good intentions. 10 great things about Ulysses. I've read the book two or three times. Once was in college for a class on modernity, once was after college on that magical reading tour I was on when I was traveling through China and Tibet. I can remember exactly where I was when I was 
reading Ulysses, the bus I was on, and then the guest house in Lhasa, my body in Lhasa, my mind in Dublin. And I've read it again since then, but it's been a few years now. Mike's reading of Ulysses is much more fresh. He has the perspective as well of all of the others who read it with him online, slowly, as part of their project, to go through classic works with the patience of Job and the eyes of the jeweler. What do you call a jeweler's eye when he or she is wearing one of those eyepieces? The squinting eye, except the squinting eye is the other one, right? The one that's looking through the little magnifying glass in that cylinder is wide open, I think. The unsquinting eye of a jeweler, it sort of squints to hold the cylinder in. That's why it's confusing. The squinting or unsquinting eye of a jeweler. Page by page, sentence by sentence. That's how those Twitterers go through it. Ten pages at a time, sometimes less. Less per day. And Mike does like eight of these at once. <laughs> How does he do it? Well, that's why he's the president of the Literature Supporters Club, and I am a mere vice president. Proust is a good read for this kind of slow reading. You dive down deep and come up for air, holding sunken treasure. Or maybe just maybe you just have the bends. <laughs> and Joyce is the same way, at least in Finnegan's Wake and Ulysses. Ulysses is about a journey... But reading it is a journey, too. Think of this episode. What you're going to hear is a couple of friends, post-journey, talking about the mountain they've descended. You've heard the phrase, how was your war? You heard people say that in movies and, and read it in books, maybe. We don't say it now, but right after World War II, they would say, how was your war? After World War I, too, I think. How was your war? Now we might say, how was your pandemic? Everyone has a story. Oh, I was visiting my parents when it broke out, and I knew they needed help, so I just stayed there. The three of us were saw no one else for 10 months. Or you read about people who were on a blind date and spent the night, and suddenly one thing led to another. Quarantine set in, and the two people just kind of moved in together. Maybe they're getting married now. Or in my case... The four of us, my wife and my two boys, lived together, hunkered down with a weekly convening to play a board game. And somehow the board game we played was called Pandemic. If we couldn't get enough of what was going on, we watched a lot of movies. We spent a lot of quality time together and it was scary and disruptive. But we were thankful to be together and healthy for the most part. Okay, that's how was your pandemic which we were all asking one another as we staggered back into society. You okay? How are things for you? How was your pandemic? That's what we said when the quarantine lifted. And of course, some people had worse stories than mine. Tragedies. Some people had caught the illness and their stories were sad, full of, sometimes full of grief. Sometimes people... Loved ones they couldn't see at the end, or hospital visits over FaceTime, and funerals on Zoom, and so on. It's like the question, how was your war? Ask that of someone in 1946, let's say. And the response might be, well, mine was mostly boring. I was sent to work in an office. Or it might be incredibly dramatic and tragic. I lost my brother. Or my husband was sent to action sent to the front lines, and he's 
came home. He hasn't been the same since. How was your war? For someone, it might be pretty good. I got rich. A munitions manufacturer might say that. So, not to be glib, comparing literature to pandemics and wars, but the question anyway is, in that family, a distant cousin, let's say, how was your Ulysses? What was it like for you to come down from that mountain? Maybe I should have just stuck to that <laughs> instead of gone into the, how was your war? But that's where the question came from, I think. How was your war? That's the one that came to my mind. How was your mountain? When I did the holy circuit around Mount Kailas, the holiest mountain in Tibet, we all stayed at the base for a few days. They call it a little town, but it's not really a town. We all were there as people arrived on their way to make the journey or arrived having just completed the three-day circuit themselves. What was your mountain like? Easy? Difficult? Inspiring? Thrilling? Did you encounter any storms? Did you manage the altitude? Was your life changed? How was your mountain? And for Mike, the question today is, how was your Ulysses? Were you bored, bothered, engaged, confused, irritated? Was it everything you hoped for? This is a question that readers of great books ask one another. And if you haven't read Ulysses, it's just as good to hear. It's just as good to hear what other people say when they're finished reading just as it is for people who have read it and are looking for company. The guest house at the end of the Kylos trip was full of people who were just starting out. They were mostly quiet, listening as people returned. How was your mountain? Well, we got trapped. We couldn't cross the ice at the end of day one. We had to pitch a tent, and it got dangerous. Worried there for a while. We might not survive the night. Or we ran out of food. We haven't eaten for two days. And the people who haven't yet made the journey nod. Ah, it's a good tip. Pack more food, prepare for rain, take things slow. But mostly the news was all positive. It's the best thing I've ever done in my life. It's just, there are no words. The voice trails off and the, the traveler-to-be, listening to the tales all evening, spends the night in bed, heart-pounding, unable to sleep. Tomorrow's the day I begin. It will be a new chapter in my life. Ulysses is like that. Is that weird? Am I the only one? Am I the only one who is that weird about books? I can remember in college when Ulysses was assigned, I, I could barely breathe as it was approaching on the syllabus. I was I was my heart would pound just thinking of it. And I ran to the bookstore and I went in and I said, Do you have this copy? of Ulysses, and they said, well, we just sold out. And I, I said, oh, but I need it. This was before you could get overnight delivery from an online bookstore. And he said, actually, we do have a copy. And he pulled one out, and it was not the version I wanted. I wanted the one of, of Joyce, with Joyce, the picture of Joyce on the cover where he's wearing a patch on his eye. And I said, oh, that's not the one. I'm looking for the the one, and I described it, he said, oh, the Modern Library Edition. He said, yes, yes, that's, that's what I was imagining I would read when I finally 
took my shot at reading this thing I've been hearing about all this time. And the guy said, well, you know, it's the same text. And in fact, this one's better because da 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 has better notes or whatever it was. Besides, it's right here. <laughs> I can sell it to you now. Unlike the, the one that you're looking for, you might have to go traveling around Chicago to other bookstores to find that one. And I weighed the decision and I said, oh, I just have to wait for the one with the guy with the eye patch on the front. And the guy kind of grumbled, yeah, okay. Okay, loser. <laughs> okay, weirdo. <laughs> and I stood there as he angrily took the copy of Ulysses back to the shelf. It had been in the back room. Now he was going to put it on the shelf. The wrong Ulysses. And I stood there not knowing what to say, just sort of smiling trying to feel better about having irritated this guy and the other clerk different guy skinny guy looked at me and said I'm the same way I know just how you feel <laughs> oh, when you gotta have the one with the guy with the eye patch on the cover you gotta have the one with the <laughs> Ah, so Ulysses is like that. Something you look forward to, something you learn all about, you hear about before you actually read it. Then you do read it. While you're on the experience, it's like no other. And then afterwards, you don't mind hearing a couple friends talk in a chatty way about it, right? How was your mountain? Well, how was your Ulysses? Mike Palindrome. After this. Hey, grown-ups. The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the cat in the hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is our old friend Mike Palindrome, the president of the Literature Supporters Club and the titan of literary Twitter. Mike, welcome back to the History of Literature. Thanks, Jack. 
So we're going to be discussing James Joyce's Ulysses, and we'll select a top 10. And I, I don't think we talked about what the top 10 is. Is it 10 <laughs> reasons to love Ulysses or, or 10 reasons to give it a try or maybe 10 interesting facts about Ulysses? What was your criterion when you were putting together your list? I think it was like 10 things to that we love about Ulysses and also 10 complaints. Ooh, okay. So it's a combination of complaints and why you should read it. 10 significant things about Ulysses. So we probably should have clarified that with each other beforehand, <laughs> but <laughs> onward we go. So you recently had one of your Twitter fests where you and a bunch of other people read Ulysses online and commented on Twitter. How many pages were you tackling per day for that project? We were doing about 10 pages a day, and then we took a couple of uh, days off um, because everybody just needed a breather. And I think, mm. let me just see how long it took to read it. We, it took us 14 weeks. Mm. Okay. And what was that experience like for you? It was great. I, I, you know, I thought I had read it before, mm -hmm. just full disclosure, <laughs> but I think I, I'd read like the first half and then, mm maybe one chapter in between before reading Molly, <laughs> the last chapter with Molly. So it was, there was stuff that I encountered. Either I passed over my first time or I just, you know, blocked it out. I think a lot of people felt like they would have dropped out mm. had we not been posting and talking about Ulysses and recommending different guides and websites. Um, right. I think it, it really is uh, one of the books that you, you get more out of it the more in depth you go and the the most relaxing easiest best way to go in depth is in uh in a course mm, right so, and I don't, I don't like to say that about a lot of books but i feel like um gravity's rainbow is another where i just i, I think it, it, it can help but be better in a class setting yeah to have a guide of a professor but and and a community of readers and i think you can get these online as well there are either groups or you can sign up for online courses if if people aren't actually a, a college student or or have access to that i but but we have people recommended websites but i found this human tendency like at, when you go to the website your your sense of initiative and your eagerness is at an all-time high and then in about 10 <laughs> seconds, you're skimming it to be like, is there, what else is there? And it, in a classroom, you know, the teacher would engage you on a human level, which websites, no matter how hard you try. I think Twitter, ironically, tweets are more human than reading an article yeah. because the article inevitably is not at your pace, you know, the, the mood you're in. Right. So, but there were some great, uh, guides, Patrick Hastings at UlyssesGuide.com hmm. had such a nice balance of just a couple of pages for each chapter. Um, and it wasn't just synopsis. It was what made each, what made this chapter different from other chapters and the kind of the highlights. Mm -hmm. um, and he's made his website guide into a book form now, but hmm. I, I found his website incredibly useful. Right. Well, there are a few things that I've learned along the way, different things to read in different ways. And one of them is I enjoy reading Italian. When I read Italian, I enjoy reading it with the side-by-side -side translation mm. on the page. And 
it just gives me the the quick access to glancing back and forth and and just reading it all in Italian and then reading some English to make sure. Sometimes I read ahead a little bit in the English and then read the Italian to catch up. And I just enjoy it that way. And I also like the No Fear Shakespeare editions, which has sort of a modernized translation. I make sure to read all of the Shakespeare. I don't want to sacrifice my vice presidency of the Literature Supporters Club by saying I'm just reading a modernized translation. But I just enjoy being able sometimes to read it to make sure I've followed a passage or I I just give myself a little breather by reading the modernized version and then go back and admire the language and read that. And, and Ulysses, the one thing I've never done, and I'll confess that it's been a while since I've read Ulysses. I've read it, I think, three times. and wow. But it's been a while. And what I've never done is a sort of side by side. Uh, here I am on this page. I'm going to get everything out of this page. I'm going to go read this, uh, mm-hmm. the annotated version alongside it, or I'm going to read this book about Ulysses that goes page by page beside it. And and so a slow read of Ulysses is something that uh, is still on my to-do list. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's such a balancing act because you don't want to stop at every line and look stuff up. And there are annotations of Ulysses online that are incredible. And I, I started using them on some days and other days I was just like, I'm done with this. I don't want to I don't want to look it up. Yeah. But I, yeah, I think it's, you know, it, it's a really kind of a testament to the to the novel that it's you, you, the, the depths um, are there if you want it. And it, otherwise, you, you can kind of, you know, take what you want from it. You know, the episodes are in different styles and all the podcasts that talk about this is my favorite episode. And I was reading, you know, that Joyce uh, called Ithaca. The Ugly Duckling, mm. but it was his favorite episode. Mm. And I think there's certain guides. Like I guess that's my number one pick is that the guides is it's almost like you're never done reading Ulysses. Mm. You know, like Ulysses on the Liffy is a very short primer. I really recommend, and it's almost written in the style of Joyce. Like sometimes I wanted to throw that book against the wall mm. in addition to Ulysses, but it's short and it has a, it's a very funny um approach to joyce like um i like i didn't you know ulysses is so many words you, you sort of overlook stuff there's a chapter called a cheese sandwich <laughs> you know it's like right um but yeah the, frank delaney has a podcast on joyce uh that people were touting it, it was it was helpful and you know the there's a memoir, Nora, The Real Life of Molly Bloom by Brenda Maddox that a lot of people enjoyed reading. Um, you know, Bloomsday is the day that he met Nora. Yeah, right. Uh, Which is also uh, the day I got married. Oh, did you guys time it that way? I think it kind of worked out <laughs> that way. You know, I kind of latched onto it uh, when it was June 16th. You know, we had it was going to be a Saturday, so it was only certain days and it was going to be june and then it was like oh here's the 9th the 16th and the 23rd and i was oh the 16th you know (laughs) bloomsday it'll be easier for me to remember uh which i don't know that that was all that well received but uh in any case uh she knew what she was getting so uh before we leave the twitter project 
I wanted to ask how this experience compared with the others you've done. And just to recap the ones you've done, I know you did Thucydides and Herodotus, Infinite Jest, I think, is ongoing, Middlemarch, War and Peace, Anna Karenina. Wow. Uh, where does Ulysses fit in with uh, how people were engaged with the book? And is it is it up there with the top? Well, it's it's I'm, I'm experiencing this with Infinite Jest right now. Um, people get, have given up on Ulysses mm. in the way that they they didn't in the other book clubs. People are giving up on Infinite Jest. Mm. Um, I, I I think it sometimes I think it's harder to read a book like this, slow read a book like this. Mm. And um and the other but the other thing I think is I think it's hard to have this be your only book at the end of the day. Yeah. Right, because you might go ten pages and just feel frustrated. Yeah, like yeah. I, I read right now. I'm reading twelve books, which I admit <laughs> is is just a little crazy. <laughs> right. So, so, but I mean, three of the books are poetry collections, so that's just you know. Yeah. I, I just read a poem a day, but I I do feel that at, sometimes I have a bad day at my day job, and I didn't want to pick up Ulysses. I mm. wanted. You know, I'm reading um, the Copenhagen trilogy by uh, Tove Ditlefsen, and it, that is like a confidant in your ear. And Ulysses is sort of like you're in a maze, and maybe you can see something today, maybe not. <laughs> yeah. Well, the books, I'm guessing that a lot of people probably lost some interest in Thucydides or Herodotus, but the books that people, I'm guessing nobody gave up on Anna Karenina, for example. No, no. In fact, a lot of people couldn't stop r reading it uh, and finished it early. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. So that happened with Magic Mountain. People, pe people finished oh, yeah. Magic Mountain early. Magic you know, Mountain. they were like, I had to see what was going to happen to him. Um, so that was interesting. Like, and people were asking for days off from Ulysses <laughs> to catch yeah. up because they were just like, I'm stuck in this chapter, and people were like. Oh, you should get to the chapter with the 379 questions, the the, the quasi Proust questionnaire chapter. It's really fun. And then other people would be like, "I'm there. I hate it." Yeah. <laughs> oh, I, that's what I was going to ask you. How did this compare with reading Proust online? Because I would guess that there would be a lot of the same, um, you know, a lot of similarities, but a lot of differences too. Well, so. I've talked about guides. The second thing I was going to talk about is just how Ulysses is almost like this inquiry into all of literature. I think it's like when we were reading it, people brought up Proust and were mm -hmm. saying, why do I, why did I enjoy Proust so much more? Mm. Like mm -hmm. what, what is it about? Cause I, I think Proust can be, um, it requires your attention, mm -hmm. um, on yeah. days when you're, you don't want to give, it your attention and that's similar to Ulysses but what but I think there's something about Ulysses it, it almost encompasses it's like a it's like a Borges like project it encompasses like all of literature in its weird way yeah and and it's also Proust I would feel like it's it's something I can understand if I'm patient enough and if I give it enough of myself. Ulysses right. is, a, is a little more like uh, The Wasteland or about Pounds or uh, Pounds Cantos or something where mm -hmm. you think yeah. there is really 
no way that I'm going to understand exactly what is going on here because I didn't have the education that Joyce did. I didn't have the experiences he did. And and this requires me to go outside the book in order to to, you know, to research something or to get an explanation of something, which sometimes doesn't really feel fair. I mean, it's in a way it's nice. It's the challenge, but it also is kind of like, well, you know, just because I didn't study that in school, it'd be like if, if you or I wrote a novel and it had all these references to Saturday night live skits from 1989 and stuff like that. It's like, you can't expect people in other countries and born in different times to have the same set of references and to follow everything that you're laying down. Yeah. I mean, it's people were doing a lot of compare comparing, um, like Mary Dickus tweeted the best part about finishing about reading Finnegan's wake at the same time is that it is starting to make Ulysses look almost normal. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. The, there was a Finnegan's wake one page a day, slow read <laughs> by my friend paper pills she, uh, on Twitter. She was running it and people were dropping it after yeah. I think page 10, they had read 10 pages. Yeah. It does feel like that. I mean, there, some people will say, oh, Ulysses is all about a single day and, and Finnegan's Wake takes us into the world of the night, you know, the mind at night and mm-hmm. and that it is more like a, a natural evolution. But I think in some ways Finnegan's Wake's, uh, that is maybe its major accomplishment is it does, it sets the bar even farther so that Ulysses is not such an extreme that it's sort of like, well, yeah. if you everything you could criticize Ulysses for, Finnegan's Wake is doing that in it's even more obscure, more challenging, more difficult to follow. And so it does make it seem like Ulysses is the happy medium. Yeah. And then Nancy Lying wrote, Moby Dick is a breeze after Ulysses. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I really like this quote. Allison Jay tweeted, I, but I have never managed to finish Ulysses, even though my eyes have seen all the words it contains. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. That does seem like, you know, if you're if you've ever like trained for a marathon, you could train for like a, a 5K or a 10K, and yeah. it will always seem hard if you're training up to that. But if you train beyond it and say, right. okay, well, I'm gonna not just challenge myself to run five miles, I'll challenge myself to run ten, and then the five mile seems so easy. You're like, ah, oh, why didn't I just, you know, I should have <laughs> set the, you know, it's kind of like that when you read Ulysses. Then you go to Virginia Woolf or you go to Henry James or you go to Moby Dick and you just feel like, oh, yeah, this is I can handle this. I can, yeah. you know, I've I've conquered mountains that are taller than this one and harder to get up to the top of. So here we go. And it does make you it stretches you out in a way. And then it's it's easier to enjoy the things that aren't quite as difficult. And then it, I think the, the beauty of reading different texts at the same time is that you you can read something, mm. feel, you know, refreshed, and maybe your guards down is a better way to put it, and then go back to Ulysses and yeah. just, you know, tackle it again. And um, I, I mean, people tweeted, like, you know, the Homeric references were fun to catch. Um, they looked up literary terms that they had had heard of but never really looked up and like you know i think it's educational in a way that is unique for you know maybe you get one 
sort of moment in a in a novel. Well, Ulysses has like thousands of these moments mm. where you're mm-hmm. just like, I don't I don't know this. Let me just look it up. Yeah. You and know? it's it's kind of like a kaleidoscope. If you go to a museum and you look at a painting, you know that you're looking at the painting that everyone else looked at and you're all bringing something different to it, but you're still having the same experience of this is what that painting looks like. And Ulysses yeah. is so, so diverse. And so you'll never read it the same way as somebody else because you might pick up on something that really delights you or that really sends you down a rabbit hole or or that resonates with you in a way. And other people might just skip over that and find the same thing in the sentence after that one, which you might have skipped over. Yeah, I mean, the skipping over is something a lot of uh, readers remarked on, like, you know, people saying, like, I didn't even notice there were the episodes had different styles. And this is my third read. Mm. <laughs> <It's> wow. Like, <laughs> like, you know, I mean, people had gone like 15 years between reads, you know, so yeah. Um, but they were they were just really cool things they were posting um, in NYU. Uh, student or professor had had done a, a spatio-temporal visualization of episode 10, The Wandering Rock. So you would have the text along one side and a map on the other side. Mm. And um, as the word, certain words were highlighted on the map, you would flash where they were and where the characters were heading. It was it was very cool. I mean, that, I think that's the... And I think that... It, that person's point was that when you read it, that's the way your brain almost subconsciously works. Like, you know that this person is making their way to the bar. You know that the deli is over there where mm. Bloom is going to pick up some some meats. Like, yeah, it was I think the whole group was enjoying it immensely on days and other days it was like dead silence. <laughs> <laughs> like, I just need a break. <laughs> Yeah. And and maybe it's um you know that who knows and and a lot of this I feel like Joyce couldn't have planned how people were going to read and respond to it exactly the way that you get the feeling that some authors know exactly the journey that they're taking the reader on and they're completely in charge of every moment of suspense and every moment of of sorrow and all of that. And this one, it's almost like building a city, uh, one of those computer online simulation cities where people get to explore it and you don't really control their choices. And instead you're just, well, I'm going to, I'm going to put this really cool park over here and I'm going to put this, this cool building here and, oh, I'll make it some underground tunnels and maybe somebody will wander into those. And you kind of, <laughs> you kind of just lay it all out there and he had said something like, this is going to keep professors and college students busy for hundreds of years or, you know, it, 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 but you do feel like what people are taking out of it is just, it's dependent on what they're putting into it. And Joyce has made it all possible, but he's also given people a lot of freedom to kind of say, well, I'm going to read this one. Uh, with an academic's mind and and I'm going to read it as if I'm writing essays about it and this one I'm going to read as if I'm drawing pictures or I'm I'm putting forth maps and this one I'm just going to wallow in the music of the language as if I'm listening to a symphony and it's kind of a, I don't know, the reading experience just is not like any other book, I don't think. I, I think the the language, a lot of people fell in love 
with mm. the language. I think that was the you know if you weren't going to look up all the illusions, the you know Joyce kind of won people over with the language. I mean they, you know people like Pia Zerhart Earhart. Uh, Quoted the heaven tree of stars hung with humid night blue fruit, mm. and she challenged us to say that three times slowly. And then, you know, um, there's a lot of he, he creates a lot of compound words mm-hmm. like the the German form. Um, let me see where bed smiling and beautiful in the sadness and birth aiding hands. Um, and so there, there, there was a lot of retweet tweets of words being repeated and um, shape shifted in in an episode. It's you know Lee Razor said it was like musical themes in a the development, and so I think that was that was a lot of fun. Is each day knowing you would encounter poetry. Yeah. Right, right. In prose. You, and you can see that in people like Dylan Thomas and John Updike and a lot of people when they read Joyce and then they try to write, they find themselves using those Joyceisms and the Joycean constructions and stuff just because it helps them be precise, to be quick and to kind of startle the reader into, a, oh, that's, you know, that's a word that describes what the sea is like crashing against the rocks. But it's it's different from how you would say it in six or seven words. You say it in that, you know, the whatever it is, the rock crushing sea or something. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought of, you know, as as I was reading Ulysses, I thought of uh, the writer Lydia Davis. Um, she gave an interview in the Paris Review about Latinate words versus Anglo-Saxon Germanic words. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I looked up the interview again because, uh, I mean, we're reading Joyce in English, because I read so much in translation, I really take it for granted that the translation is just as good as the English. But I, I think when when I read Ulysses, I think there's it, it must be so hard to translate Ulysses. And hmm. a friend of mine actually did the last Ulysses translation into Italian. Hmm. Um, but she said that it was almost like she had to read the book, you know, five times. Yeah. To try to translate it, you know. But. Ulysses might be that kind of the way people say Pushkin is untranslatable or it, it might be that you never really. Because one of the themes of the book is that it's kind of like the history of the English language and the history of English literature. And so it would be really hard to kind of capture all of that and, and put it into another language. Um, you know what? So we have not even gotten to our top 10 here. Let's take a quick break. And come back and we'll figure out what we're going to do with this list that we're planning to do. Okay, we are back. Mike... I don't know exactly. Maybe we, we've been talking. I feel like we've trampled all over the list, at least the things I was going to take. I have a couple. Of, so I, I, I said one of my things on the list were all the guides yeah. and the cottage industry. And yep. then my second thing was um, the frustration mm-hmm. 
of reading this. And then in my mind, the third thing was sort of like the language. And and, and I wanted to read this little thing that Lydia Davis wrote because it. Uh, <clears throat> she says that I value the fact that English has two parallel vocabularies, the Germanic vocabulary and the Latinate. For example, we have the word undersea and we have the wor word submarine. Um, so we can shift registers. We can mm -hmm. say something in a very plain, blunt Anglo-Saxon way, like I will not do that. All Anglo-Saxon monosyllables. Or we can say it in a fancier, more distant, abstract, Latinate way, like I prefer not to permit myself to approach such a notion. Right. <laughs> so I feel like th that, that the ancestry of the English language, there were times in Ulysses you could you could hear the bluntness of the Anglo-Saxon, and then you could hear the the melody of the Latinate. Yeah. Uh, well, he, uh, you know, one of the things on my list was the whole censorship case, and yeah. maybe I'll talk about that later. But the judge in that had said, you know, these are just uh, Anglo-Saxon words. Use some old <laughs> Saxon words, and kind of. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, and and you know, sure, it's blunt, but so is Beowulf, and so is. You know, that that's part of our culture and our history, too. We have these these four letter words or these uh, scatological words and they that's part of life. And you see them in Chaucer and you see them, you know, that's just part of our inheritance, our inherited language. But then, as Lydia Davis is saying, Joyce will also have the ineluctable modality of the visible. Right. And you just say, like, well, that's not something that's tripping off the tongue of Beowulf. <laughs> right yeah it's uh i mean so i i think the uh <clears throat> the the way you know our group collectively um went through ulysses it, it was like our opinions of the book were changing on a dime mm. you know like i was saying like some days they, you know um People would say like, oh, Molly's famous last line, yes, I said, yes, I will, yes, is a conversational translation of I am the flesh that always affirms. Mm -hmm. That's what Paper Pills was pointing out. And I was like, wow, the the over meaning and meaning in Ulysses is incredible. Yeah. You know, and you're just in awe of those yeah. kind of moments. Right. You know, and then the other times you're not. <laughs> yeah. right right and other times it's virginia wolf saying this is an undergrad scratching his pimples and you, <laughs> you feel like joyce could get carried away or he could be uh emphasizing something that's not all that interesting or urging on the reader something that maybe isn't that interesting but you you also i mean the music of it is yeah. what separates joyce from somebody who is also just writing this sort of pyrotechnic prose. I, the the Molly speech, the, the musicality of it, and it reminds me of the famous last line of, uh, the famous last paragraph of uh, The Dead, where mm -hmm. when you read it, it can be lost on you until you really take the time to just absorb it and, and really get into it, is just how musical it is. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, there were so many uh, quotes about the the, the phrasings um, and just the surprise of like, you know, she only married him because he was the cousin of his old fellows 
a cousin of his old fellows was the pew opener to the Pope. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I think my favorite was the uh, where he's got uh, young. He's talking about young J U N G Carl Jung and Sigmund uh-huh. Freud, and he says that a uh-huh. girl was young and easily frightened. which i i don't like puns but i just you have to sit back and admire stuff like that it's like he is like willy wonka with words instead of chocolates you know willy wonka maybe before the factory blows up or before the visitors come and he's exposed as like a murderer but he's just a he's he loves words they it's almost like he's in a dialogue with them, like they're animals and he's Dr. Doolittle and he can communicate with words in a way that other people couldn't. And he's celebrating that communication on the page for us to admire. Yeah, I mean, the bar, the bar scenes and the bar banter, you know, like we can't change the country. Let us change the subject. You know, there's stuff like <laughs> there's stuff like that. And then there's stuff like, you know, love me, love my dirty shirt. Yeah, it's like uh, I think people really it was like coming off for a breath of air, you know, some some of the bar scenes um, because other scenes. I mean, it it really was like in the margins, like, where are we? What is happening? Yeah. 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 Uh, So So, while we're on the subject of uh, language, there's also the stream of consciousness, which uh, is very important and very fluid and it's got this whole modernism apparatus behind it all the force of modernism is there in this stream of consciousness style it sort of culminates in that and it embodies that all of the themes of modernism and it it does reflect the mood it reflects the thoughts it was very exciting for people at the time to think well this is how people really think and this is a novel that's capturing uh you know what it's really like to be inside someone's mind i feel like Ulysses and maybe Virginia Woolf give me enough of it. And maybe in other books, I enjoy it when it's employed really strategically in small doses. But mm-hmm. I don't I don't feel like uh, novels needed to follow that path in, or that they should return to that as like, a uh, well, this is the this is high art and everyone should be writing in the stream of consciousness. What did you end up thinking about it? I agree with you, but I would add um, USA Trilogy by mm. John Dos Passos. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think I find I find that effective. Um, I think some of the stream of consciousness moments, uh, passages in Ulysses, I, you know, um, disliked. Because mm. yeah. it was... I, I was struggling with a lot of these lists. Uh-huh. Um, it's almost like Joyce was checking on us to see if we'd read the whole list. Like there was a list that said uh, the St. John of God, S. Anonymous and S. Eponymous and S. Pseudonymous and S. Homonymous <laughs> and S. Parsimonous <laughs> and S. Synonymous. And it was like, <laughs> yeah, like what, what, so there was a little bit of head scratching, but then, um, I, I mean, I, I there were days when I skimmed. Yeah, I was, I was like, I, I, I get it. Yeah. yeah, or like, or I, you're making me look at this because it's going to be an example of something, and I don't need to read the whole thing in order to get out of it the fact that you did it. Yeah, uh, but, or I see what you're 
what you're trying to list here and you're sort of purging it from your own consciousness or you're 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 viewing it as important in a way that I am not going to share and so I'm just going to skip over it I'm not going to uh, meet you at your level on this one yeah I mean I, I mean I I there's some similarities between infinite jest and Ulysses because the, there are passages where David Foster Wallace goes overboard mm-hmm. and it's almost like his level of genius and Joyce's genius you had to have it this way. You had to have it all coming at you for them to, you know, um, pull it off because you and I might see edits, but, you know, they needed the entire passage to almost overwhelm the reader mm. to deliver like a payoff. Like there's this section where he goes, Joyce goes, Mendelssohn was a Jew and Karl Marx and Mercadant and Spinoza and the savior was a Jew and your God was a Jew. Christ was a Jew like me. By Jesus, for using the holy name, by Jesus, I'll crucify him. Give us that biscuit box here. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, I mean, you could try to edit it, but yeah. there's I, something about the the flow of it yeah. that, you know, it, it, you know, you get the, you get this weird feeling that you get also in Infinite Jest where, you know, um, it, it would be it would be ruined by editing. It'd be like uh, taking the Grateful Dead and saying, "This song doesn't need a forty minute guitar solo." Uh, yeah, I'm gonna snip it from you know I can I can I can cut it down to twenty seconds. Right. Uh, <laughs> and fans would say, "What are you doing?" The, the whole point is the way that this flows, and and we're here to listen to Jerry Garcia do the 40 minute guitar solo. Uh, but part of me is still kind of like, you know, I like touch of gray. I like, uh, <laughs> I like trucking. I like those three and a half minute grateful dead songs too. <laughs> That's a good analogy. Cause I, I, they, you know, that when they, they would do three songs melding into each other. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I don't even remember the, the songs, but if I, I think there's like fire on the mountain goes into like, Terrapin Station. I think there's one of these, and that I just love. And mm. it, it's that feeling. But you know, other people have pointed out, like Joyce writes these great images, like this. Like he he wrote John Henry Menton filling the doorway of commercial building, stared from wine big oyster eyes, holding a fat gold hunter watch, not looked at in his fat left hand, not feeling it. So he can write something like that, which yeah. we feel and we see. So why does he do the three pages of dream hallucination mm-hmm. where you can't tell left and right? You know, I think right. that people were, and I didn't really have an answer for that. You know, sometimes I felt like defending Joyce and sometimes I was just like, let the arrows fly. You well, know? It, yeah, but it also... You know, like with with Proust, I feel like what we got is almost like the only way Proust could do it. You know, that it's just unimaginable to think he of him writing, you know, um, 
at, with that kind of genius in another way. But with Joyce, we got Dubliners. And right. there's times when I just wish, well, why didn't he just write 100 stories like Dubliners? He could have just been oh. Chekhov, you know, and or why yeah. didn't he write, you know, five Madame Bovary's and he they could have been as good as Jane Austen or but mm. he, he just that just wasn't him. He he had more that he his ambition was different and higher and it was to set a different bar and to use myth and to encompass all of literature and to it was it was almost like he couldn't uh i don't know it's like he he could fly he had wings and he could fly but in dubliners he was flying inside a building it was like oh impressive that he's flying but he wanted to be outside and fly as high as close as he could get to the sun yeah, I mean, we, we were reading uh, on Twitter, um, we're doing a slow read of Stephen Hero with uh, mm. Public Space Together at the same time. <laughs> it overlapped with um, with Ulysses, and that was fascinating. Because, Why were they doing that? I'm really surprised they chose to do that. Um, they they had a host who was uh, oh. an Irish writer okay. who um, loved that book. And so... Um, I really, I really enjoyed it. I, I think it was, you know, if people don't know it, it's like considered an early draft, a portrait of an artist. Yeah. Um, and there are some passages that are brilliant that were cut out, mm. you know, especially the mother, uh, son relationship. Um, but you know, they people would would uh, remark on the most Stephen hero like lines mm-hmm. in Ulysses, like. Um, there's a greet, there's a way people greet each other instead of saying, how's it going or hello, they say, what's the best news. Mm. And that was kind of like this weird Stephen Harrow, um, brash university speak, but it was in like a Ulysses type format. And, you know, like another line in Ulysses was people talk about you a bit, forget you. We are praying now for the repose of his soul, hoping you're well and not in hell. (laughs) <laughs> and it it was like this weird like Stephen Hero stuff, but put into the Ulysses translator. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, interesting. Uh, okay, so where else? Where are we on your list? I think I'm not even going to supply anything. I'll just add. I'll supplement whatever you're saying. <laughs> so what other what other things did you have? Um, the you know the Irishness and the anti-American. Mm sentiments um which i you know everyone knows the story uh joyce left ireland and never returned mm-hmm. and you know but ulysses is through and through irish yeah brick by brick he wanted uh, to recreate the city of dublin and it's like lines like god these Brit- bu- bloody english bursting with money and indigestion <laughs> <laughs> uh well uh, let me jump in here then and talk about the censorship story which i looked up to make sure i had all the details right before we began here and this was a case uh in the southern district of new york your home district uh and it was called the united states versus one book called ulysses which cracks me up (laughs) it makes me think of schoolhouse rock and the bill you know sitting on capitol hill like one book called ulysses it's a little book waiting to take us you know what are they saying about me in there uh so there were three arguments against 
Ulysses. One was sexual titillation, especially Molly's soliloquy at the end. And they said it had, quote, unparlor-like language. So that that was their phrase for it. The second thing, the second argument against was that it was blasphemous in its treatment of the Roman Catholic Church, which kind of surprised me to see that. I I knew there was obscenity arguments, but I was kind of surprised to see that blasphemy against a particular church would be uh, grounds that the United States would bring in its censorship. You know, this is a separation of church and state country, but that was one of the things uh, that they included in their complaint. And the third thing was that it brought to the surface coarse thoughts and desires that usually were repressed. And the defense was all, you know, this is this is artistry, this is a, a serious novel, the author is sincere and honest, and the stream of consciousness... The judge said that... The, the judge clearly liked the book and <laughs> said that the stream of consciousness was an astonishing success... And he said, the work is not an aphrodisiac, but it does replicate how characters think and act. He said, it uses some old Saxon words. And and then he said, if you're worried about sex being on the minds of the characters all the time, this was his phrase, you must always remember that Joyce's locale was Celtic and his season's spring. (laughs) (laughs) And so uh, Joyce was elated by the decision that the the book was deemed, uh, you know, not obscene and, and could be printed. And he said, one half of the English-speaking world surrenders, the other half will follow. And he said, wow. uh, England will shortly follow. And then he said, uh, Ireland, he, he said, England will follow within a few years, and Ireland will allow it surely within a thousand years. <laughs> and england actually followed within weeks um but it it, i think it took ireland longer which is funny because now i mean they they'll play it uh they revere it they on bloomsday they'll play it from every radio and every store and you know they it's so celebrated now and so uh but joyce believed that Ireland was going to be against it for a long time. So the dissents in the to the opinion are worth uh, reading as well. They're kind of interesting. They say that this isn't a medical text, and so there's no reason to talk about these body parts and bodily functions. And they say novels, you know, that if you're weighing the costs and benefits, the benefit here is entertainment. And it's optional for people to read. It's not like a medical text that's going to save someone's life. But literature should have effects that are, it should be ennobling, it should be uh, uplifting to the people, it shouldn't give in to obscenity or lustful thoughts or ungodly ideas. There's Those costs don't outweigh the benefits of being entertainment for people. And what uh, Louis Menand kind of put it, I think, in the best way, it's not so much a victory for obscenity, but for reality. And he says, the, uh, it showed that the artist must have absolute freedom to work with the world he or she has stumbled across, the world as it is. And he says, the fact that we can assume that to be true of artists and that we give artists that freedom largely comes from Joyce and this uh, obscenity case that uh, in the Southern District of New York. I mean, you know, you have to read it to get to all that. And I just, it's funny in, in this day and age to even imagine this being, you know, brought to trial because I just don't know if people would read it. 
Yeah. <laughs> right. And they were excited to read. I, I mean, I guess yeah. we probably went through this with films as well when judges were, were watching the films. And I guess, you know, they're probably doing it with virtual reality or I don't know what's coming up next, sex robots or something. I spent a week with, you know, with X293, the, the sex robot coming out of Japan, and I think it's okay to allow her to... <laughs> <laughs> onto our shores <laughs> holograms holograms i don't know what the the next things will be but it does seem like there's yeah. this thing where judges in order to rule they they kind of have no choice if they're being objective they kind of do have to experience it and see if it's what people are talking about it's a different era when there was such a power a belief in the power of a novel you know i i, I think you know We'll never see a case like this. Not just not because we're not prudes anymore, but because we we don't view novels this way. Yeah, right. Yeah. We ju they're just all swept in. You don't yeah. you don't have to be artistic. You don't have to claim that the author was honest and sincere. You don't even have to read it. It's just sort of like if it's calling itself a novel, unless right. it's. I don't know. I don't know what the First Amendment boundaries are these days, but it's like you're not you're not supposed to print like troop locations and you're not supposed to print. Uh, there's probably some restrictions around uh, child pornography and bestiality or something like that. But as far as like a, a novel that's just in prose, that's written by a person and is designed as fiction for people to read, nobody is is declaring Fifty Shades of Grey obscene and saying, well, that doesn't help anybody. It doesn't uplift anybody. It's not moral. It doesn't, it's blasphemous. Nobody is even viewing books with that kind of criteria. We should do an episode on erotic passages mm -hmm. and see, and we should rank that. I mean, probably be totally outside your, your, you know, the history of literature, what they, we've never done before, but we should rank them in the level of titillation. I mean, here's, here's something from Ulysses that somebody uh, teased uh, Joyce for and said, you naughty boy. And it goes flood of warm jam, jam, lick it up, sweet secretness flow to flow in music out in desire, dark to lick flow invading to pour over sluices pouring gushes flood gush flow joy gush thup throb throb <laughs> <laughs> like i'm trying to imagine a judge reading that and saying like is that titillating or not yeah <laughs> right right i wasn't titillated you know you could imagine uh -huh. the judge thinking that like i'm not uh it's not the same as looking at a peep show type photos of a naked body or something. Yeah, I mean it's a, you know it, to to me Ulysses um, titillates the brain. You know, it's like there's people who are citing these short sentences from Ulysses, like twang and diphthong mm. and um, invincible ignorance mm. um, and just the physicality of the words, like. Uh, these words ruin them, wreck their lives, then build them cubicles to end their days in. Hushabye, lullaby, die dog, little dog, die. It's like <laughs> just so, there's so much, there's like a novel. In, yeah. In, 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 you know, build them cubicles to end their days in. Yeah. I mean, it's like, are you talking about dogs or are you talking about us? You know, it's. And it's, it's the intensity of lyric 
poetry, but it's spinning out over prose, over pages and pages and pages, you know, or there'll be these little moments of it that you think, well, if this yeah. was a line in a sonnet or if this was a single phrase in a poet, you'd you'd underline it and you'd admire it. And Joyce just is unspooling them one after the other. Like the, the readers were swinging back and forth between, you know, recommending it as the most important book you'll ever read to be prepared to have a lot of whiskey while you drink while you read because you're you're going to feel stress tension boredom frustration and um, one of the tweets i love mary dick has said seven years after finishing ulysses i swore i would never read it again i am so glad i did i learned from you all about what people appreciate in this book thanks for sharing your thoughts and helping me grow and i swear i will never read it again <laughs> <laughs> Now, let me ask you something. That's actually kind of a good place to end. And, and I want to give you the last word. But let me ask you a question first. Yeah. Do you think it could be a book that once you've read it, you can dip into it and kind of open it to page 300 and just see what's there and then spend some time in it and then close the book again? I don't think so. No, you got to start <laughs> at the beginning and, and work your way to the end. I, I think you got it. You have to be in it. Yeah, you have to. Um, I and I, I I mentioned that that tweet because there were times in the book where I thought, you know what, I'll never, you know, donate this book to Housing Works, but I may not open it again. Yeah, you know. <laughs> and then there were times where I was like, you know what, I think I'll read it again. I you know I, I maybe I'll read it when I'm in ten years, you know, because I I re read so much. I, you know, I got to reread Ulysses again. And you'd never say that. It, I mean, you might say that about another book, but only because you think I got bored by it or I, I didn't, uh, I, I heard what he has to say about this relationship or something. But the Ulysses is just a different reading experience. It's almost like, it is like climbing a mountain and you, it's got these stretches that are really hard and stretches that feel like you're you're you can't do anything but look down at your feet and go step by step and be certain of your footing because the the path is so treacherous and there's other passages where you're almost like on flat ground and you have this gorgeous vista and you could just walk along and the breeze is blowing on your face and it feels really good and there's you know when you get to the end you feel like you've ascended to this summit that everything else is smaller than you you're on top of the mountain and all these other books like The Great Gatsby and The Sun Also Rises are just little hills down there. And <laughs> you, know, you feel like, you know, maybe you don't need to climb it again. You know, you need to be in shape and you know, you need to be ready to do it. And you know, you need to be committed in order to make your way up. The There's no other book that I would say any of this about that um, that feels quite like that. It's such a it's such a towering achievement in its era and kind of for all time. That yeah. um, it just gives you this whole different reading experience, not just because the book is so different, but because you yourself are having to do such a different thing when you're reading it. Yeah, I was as I was reading it, I was thinking, what what must have been like being like one of the first readers, of mm, it? Mm -hmm. you know, um, without any of the cottage industry, any of the guides. Like, what 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 was it like? I mean, you know, um, and then what is it like for what will it be like in a hundred years when technology is people were e-reading it and able to jump to places where 
uh, certain characters appeared. And mm. what if there is going to be a different guide 100 years from now that can kind of plug directly into your brain and tell you, you know, every illusion as you go? Um, yeah, uh, you know, right. like, <laughs> <laughs> and what will it be like reading it that way? Um, it, it's something everybody has to try. That's what I basically concluded. Yeah. That at, at some point, if you read seriously and you read a lot, you, you should pick up a used copy of Ulysses. You can get it for 25 cents. There's, if, I always see it at a used <laughs> bookstore. That's, it's, it's funny to see because you, you just know somebody tried it and was yeah. like, I'm done with this. Yeah. You know, pick it up for 25 cents and try it out. So here are some contemporary readers, people who were responding early. T.S. Eliot said, quote, I hold this book to be the most important expression which the present age has found. It is a book to which we are all indebted and from which none of us can escape. Damn. And then he said, uh, Joyce was not at fault if people after him didn't understand it. And he said, quote, the next generation is responsible for its own soul. <laughs> and then Virginia Woolf said it's a memorable catastrophe immense in daring terrific in disaster uh, I feel I feel like I would have been <laughs> like more like Virginia Woolf in my <laughs> in my review I mean yeah I mean it, it, it opens up with like gangbusters at the tower and then you know it kind of like tricks you and then yeah. you like learn to read it and then it tricks you again yeah, right. You probably would have, your review at the time probably would have been uh, read three pages, put it down, <laughs> went to go watch Charlie Chaplin at the, uh, <laughs> much better. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it has become, I'll, I'll end with this, it, it has become uh, this symbol for erudition and um, mm. great literature, you know, number one on all these lists. And yeah. I, I, somebody tweeted a picture of this in WKRP in Cincinnati, the TV show, um, the Lonnie Anderson character always, uh, was reading. And there was an episode where she was reading Ulysses. Mm. Yeah. The citizen <laughs> Kane of, of novels. Mm. Right. Or, uh, or Lonnie Anderson, uh, as Herb Tarlick uh, walks by with his copy of Playboy under his arm. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, let's leave things there. Mike, as always, thank you for joining me on the History of Literature. Thanks, Jack. Okay, there we go. My thanks to Mike P. for joining me. Oh, boy, Ulysses. And guess what, people? We've got some Cervantes coming up soon. That's on the calendar. We'll be talking to a pair of experts for that one. We'll travel to Bengal for some Rabindranath Tagore. And then we return to America, but call a novelist in India, a novelist who's actually from Bengal. But we talk to him about D.H. Lawrence and Lady Chatterley's lover. See, that's what's so great about literature. It's a passport to everywhere. We're going to 1930s England soon for some spy novels. We're looking at poets and their understanding of economics. That's pretty fascinating. And we've got some Kurt Vonnegut speaking at the very first Earth Day. And we will have T.S. Eliot in the Wasteland coming up. We'll talk about what that did for poetry. Hint, it changed everything. 
We have another Emma's pick, courtesy of our producer Emma, and our intern selects some best of clips to share. So tell all your friends, hey, hey, friends, I'm scripting this for you. Hey, you, friends, time to get with it. Join the club. Stop being such a bad person. Now, I'm not saying that people who don't listen to the History of Literature podcast are bad people. I'm saying they are evil. Just kidding, of course. I'm saying they are our listeners-to-be, friends I have not yet met. Saying they are missing out. So, back to our script. Hey, friends. Hey, you, friends. Don't miss out. Subscribe and follow and listen to this thing. And then we can say to one another, how was your podcast? And the answer will be pretty good, hopefully. A little off the rails at the end. But that's to be expected because, as we know... It's because poor Jack is lonely and never wants to say goodbye, even though he always gets to say that he'll see us all again. Okay, script over. And scene. Back in my own head, using my own voice. I'm the poor and lonely Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>